everybody, this is Keith Rainwater. I am your host for Designated Drummer, and in the studio today, in, I'm actually not in the normal studio that I do, I'm in Mills Logan's studio, I'm talking to Mills here, he's our engineer with Lone Star, um, not live, but actually when we make records. Yes. Yes, Mills Logan, and uh, he goes way, way back in the history of Nashville recording. And <laughs> way, what, way, what, way um, back. <laughs> yes, way back. Um, what year did you actually start like um, doing working in Nashville? Let's say for you know. I moved living? here in July of '91, and um, uh, it came about because I was in a cover rock cover band back in Owensboro, Kentucky, in the late '80s, and we um, we went into a little recording studio to record our original songs so that we could get gigs playing live. And I argued with the bass player, saying that's all backwards, man. We don't. We need to do it the other way. Um, but anyway, so thanks to him, and we we fought a lot and didn't get along. But thanks to him, I got to go into this little studio in Owensboro called Electric Arts. That was like an '89, right when the Berlin Wall came down. And um, uh, I couldn't believe when I walked into the door. And so after that, you know, of course, got kicked out of the band. You know, it's you know. Perfect. <laughs> no, you played guitar, right? You were a guitar. I played. Player. I played guitar, not very good. And uh, got kicked out of the band, and I went right back to that studio and said, talked to the house engineer, uh, and I said, "Man, I gotta, I gotta do this. This is what I want to do." It was like that epiphany that when you oh, soon as I, you... I knew as soon as I walked in, even as a guitar player, I'm like, "Oh my lord, I am home. This is. I'd never been in a studio like that. It was a real studio, Spectrosonic console." A Scully 16-track, two-inch tape machine, a wall of cool outboard gear, and and I'd never seen that stuff. And just putting the headphones on and hearing my guitar for the first time, and then doubling my guitar, and then adding like a harmony. I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is the best. And and so I, when I kick, kick, got kicked out of the band, went back to that studio and asked Terry Height, who was the house guy, and Steve Chandler, who both still work down here, I believe, in Nashville. And I said, I want to, I want to this and they opened up mixed magazine and said go to the recording workshop in ohio that was the only really real recording school so i went there did pretty good it was hard as hell had no idea what i was getting into and then moved here and, and just started showing up at studios how long did you you said it was a year or something at the- no the studio the the program the recording workshop was short there was three different programs there was the basic the main program then there was like a maintenance program where they kind of taught you basic soldering skills and stuff. Because if you're going to work in a studio, you got to kind of know basic stuff. Right. And then there was uh, the advanced. And I took all three of them. And it was only like three months. But it was 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And I think there oh, was wow, one, yeah. one weekend off and that whole thing. It was pretty pretty grueling schedule. I loved every minute of it. So it's similar to what they have now here, Blackbird Academy? Yes. They yeah, kind of have the early accelerated. Version. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it was, and the school is still there. Uh, it's not quite as on the radar. It's still a really good school, and they got your head in the right place. That was one of the things they did that was really good, is they got, um, they got your your attitude right. They're like, you know, you're going to go down there, and nobody's going to care that you're there. They don't need you. You got to find a place for yourself. And that was right. the, one of the best things they did. Taught me signal flow, how to run a console. Pro Tools wasn't really around back then, but it was Sound Tools, two channels only. And I thought that was pretty fascinating, but it was a novelty. Back it was then. called Sound Tools back then. Sound Tools, yeah. yeah. And it was only two channels and horribly, horribly uh, unstable. And it was just a novelty. And I loved it because I was a computer guy. I was a computer science dropout uh, in regular okay. college. And um, I got in there and got into the computer science part and saw the requirements. I said, oh, no, not for me. <laughs> I'm a user, not a programmer. And, um, and so I, um, uh, but I, I learned the basics of Sound Tools, but mostly analog tape and big consoles right and that was still the name of the game for the, at least the following 10 so years you you came up right in the golden age of the transition between That's when right. i say came up i mean like you were already in you know a hard worker in the audio recording industry when pro tools came when it went from analog That's right. into digital and you saw all the the shortcomings and all the you saw it you saw the the growing pains oh boy did i and uh yeah because in 91 there was no it was all if there was digital, it was digital tape. Right. You know, stationary I remember head. that. It was like quarter inch. Well, there was there was a Sony 3348, which was the really badass 48-track, half-inch, half-inch? Yes, half-inch dash tape, what they call dash. And that was a fixed-head machine, and it could sample, and it could fly around. And we just thought, wow, this is really cutting edge. $250,000 for the machine. And then there was the Mitsubishi and Otari uh, PD format, which were one-inch 32-track 
tape machines, and they were just basically just a recorder, kind of like analog. And then, of course, analog tape. And analog still was kind of the king here in town. We did lots of 224 track machines locked up. And, um, How did that work? How did that work out? Was there a synchronizer between yeah, yeah. the two? Either either as an Adam Smith Zeta three, which is foreign language to most people now, or the uh, Lynx twos. Wow! And um, um, and they they time code on track twenty four, and they read the time code, and they would say it was amazing to watch two machines work together. Yeah. And years later, fast forward to not too many years ago, I would do that here in my studio. I would have Pro Tools and and Atari MTR90 oh, wow. run together, and it was awesome. You know, it's a lot. But that of work. doesn't happen very often at no, all. I mean, no, that's almost it, like never. Yeah, yeah. But we you don't got know. to experience that. Wow. Yeah. So, and I read something years ago that Tom Scholes of Boston, who was the you know recording engineer, guitar player, the founder, um, pretty much the he, whole band. Yeah, pretty much the whole band. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, the only thing he didn't play probably was drums and sing. Yeah. But uh, anyway. Um, he was talking about how uh, in an article where he had two 24-track machines back in the 70s, and he would try to – he said he said his words were uh, there was a synchronizer that would synchronize the two machines. That's it correct. ended up being a lemon is what he said. It didn't work. Yeah, I don't so know how – they had tr- to by hand. They had to – Yeah, and I, you know, <laughs> doing 10 years of analog tape machines, I read that and go, I wonder how much of that's really true. I mean, not, I don't doubt Tom Schultz. He was a genius and, and an awesome – uh, everything he was awesome at everything, yeah. and uh, and those records fascinate me from the day they came out, and they still fascinate me in the stories. But to sit there and run two twenty fours and keep them in sync with your hand on the flange, I don't think so. Yeah, do you know how hard that is to do with guitar tones and things like that that might go yeah, well. And, and if you get more than about a millisecond or two at a time, your drums, any transients that might be on one machine that share between the two machines. It's going to be a mess. I, I, yeah. I, something tells me there's a little bit more to that story. I don't doubt that the synchronizers in the 70s weren't very good. That's early, early, yeah. early te- technology, uh, early times for that kind of technology. But I, I, I wonder how much that story is really. It might be a little bit embellished to make it sound cool. Yeah. You know, because those I records would, are amazing and they and everything's in time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would think that maybe it would be sort of like something like where all the music would be on one 24 track machine. And because there were so many vocals in Boston mm-hmm, music and, mm-hmm. of course, pop, you know, any music at right, all right, has right. a lot of vocals. Have all the vocals on one machine and all the music on the other. So if they did, they did flutter a little bit off, then you know. With vocals, would, you've got four or five milliseconds before yeah. you're going to start. Some people say oh, I can hear seven milliseconds with the lead vocal being out of sync with the band. Right. You know that's getting pretty tight, but definitely under ten milliseconds, yellow float. But I mean, how would they know? Yeah. Right. How would they know? Are they listening to two click tracks on? Sorry, listening to two click tracks on this two different machines anyway you know it's right like, yeah it's just like which one is ahead and which one's behind right so right 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 but i'm sure there was a science so when pro tools came out i can just imagine that it was probably a relief and a nightmare at the same time it was a nightmare computers would crash it was in a the middle of nightmare. a big dollar session when you got all the cats oh, in there and boy. all of a sudden oh sorry guys we got to start over yeah been there before and don't not so much anymore because um um pro tools is is is, is a nice mature format now yeah God forbid it go away and we have to learn another one. But um, but digital audio workstations in general have come a long way. And uh, when people complain about Pro Tools now, I'm like, oh, you have no idea. I mean, I remember version one. Yeah. Version one. And, and you had the mix window and you had the edit window. Yeah. And they were two different apps. And you went to the Finder called MultiFinder <laughs> back then. This was like in 92, 91, 92, 93. And you would switch between Pro Edit and Pro Deck. And... Eight times out of ten, it locked up. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and if so, you moved a region, if you took, you know, now we don't think twice about taking a region and moving around, you could, there was no spot to time code. There was no original spot to time code, meaning when you, once you move that region, I mean, no, nobody knew where it went back. <laughs> so oh if you had to gosh. go back and you only had one level of undo, Command Z, one level. Now we got sixty four. Oh so you can wow! Keep undoing yeah. until you know. You can just go back to the yeah. DNA of when you first started the song. Right? right, right. But but you know, it's it's come a long way. Um, no. Is uh, would you say that Pro Tools is um, kind of now? I noticed that in other areas around the country and around the world, um, Pro Tools is there, but it's not really like a work. It's not really a sort of a solid force. It's like you got Logic and you got other things. Would you say that Pro Tools is kind of a Nashville? Like has Nashville no, sort of adopted it's, it's, it? It's, it seems it's worldwide. just because I live here. It seems like yeah, that. it's worldwide. I mean, it's New York, L.A., London here. Uh, Germany is, you know, places in Europe. So a lot of a lot of songwriters will use Logic because it's a good music creation workstation. Yeah, and Logic's great for that. It's not very good for editing and mixing because it's not really geared toward that. I mean, people do it, but Logic and 
Pro Tools and Nuendo are probably the three main formats. And you got, you know, some guy, I know I've heard of a guy mixing, he mixes guys' records in Ableton Live. I can't imagine how the, oh, really? how weird yeah. that must be. Cause that's, that's like a really, spreadsheet, you know. I it's not really designed for, for mixing and editing, but it's, uh, I suppose, whatever works, you know. And, and um, um, but, um, Pro, I think Pro Tools probably has ninety percent of the market share around the yep. around the world. I'd say because you can you can record something on Pro Tools in Nashville, send it to someone in L.A., they open it up on their machine. That's and, right. That's right. You know, keep going. It's kind of a standard. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just like twenty four track tape. People say, "Well, we've got I like sixteen track two inch. It's better sounding." Yeah, sixteen track two inch sound a little fatter, but twenty four track two inch was no slouch of a format. That's what became standard, and that's what almost everybody recorded on for all those years. You know, once yeah. and it, you know they tried a thirty two track two inch, and it was just or no. Uh, 32 track three inch tape but they couldn't get the tapes it, it would roll over tape. it never it never made it was never passed just the development stage wow. but, but it would just roll off it was too too tall too they tall keep, too flimsy and yeah they yeah, couldn't I keep it to yeah, stay on the head type. yeah well so i've always been fascinated with two inch tape in the history of it and like i've i've tried to search on the internet about like when what year was the first two, uh, 24 track machine came out and I, it's just kind of all over the place there's really no it's hard it's hard year. to find exactly when because like i've done doing dolby atmos mixing for universal a lot for the last two years especially when we first started we were doing tons of old catalog and i would get motown songs from like the early 60s and they would be four track right see, okay. six, I'm, i think i'm right on that um three track and four track analog tape and it would be already dumped in pro tools but that would be just the four tracks it'd be like the band on one track maybe whatever the lead instrument might be and then like lead vocal and backgrounds right it was a whole mix and those recording engineers back then had to be amazing because you basically had to mix that stuff as you went you know and then they would go back and remix just the four tracks but there might be you know six or seven musicians on one track and you better get that balance right or it's gonna be a tough way tough road to mix but i think um 16 track I know the Beatles, I think, did their last record on 16-track, which was, what, 69? Right. 70? Yeah. And 16-track, um, and but, but a lot of studios kept their 16-track tw- machines, so when I would get these files, it might have been 1974, and I would still have a 16-track. You know, the files I would get to mix now would be on a 16-track. That's just because what the studio had. But I did an Elton John stem mix for Universal, a, a cover version of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, that he covered at caribou ranch in 74 and that was on 24 track so i know 24 track was around and probably in the mainstream by 74 um but no i think i think by the mid 70s 24 track was pretty much the mainstream and some studios may have stayed 16 track either they couldn't afford to go or they um uh, didn't want to go because somebody, you know, just like a lot of things, like well, sixteen track sounds better, you know. And I'm sure and, the reels were expensive too. You know, the two inch tape back mm-hmm, then, to yeah. the cost implications would have been to right, do a right. whole album, and each song. How many songs? Like at the high, highest speed, at how many songs ifs, could you get on one? You, could, you had about uh, sixteen minutes of tape. Sixteen minutes, and, a, and yeah. an album back then, let's say, was about maybe forty five minutes to. Yeah, just but under you know that hour. doesn't include outtakes, and you, right. know, you could easily right. have ten reels of tape for a record. Right. You know, some guys were real frugal, and they would just go over the same recording until it was right, and there oh, would I only see. be ten songs, no outtakes, <laughs> and they burned over the out, the ones they didn't like. So, yeah. uh, but it but it could easily be several reels of tape, and I know when we were buying tape in the early nineties, it was one hundred thirty five dollars a roll. Right. And now it's a boutique format because all the major manufacturers rights ATR services and RMG, I believe, still, and it's like three hundred fifty bucks a roll. Golly, I still have a roll. I got a roll of two inch tape that I've had for all of them out there. Years and years that you you were telling me one time it needed to be baked or something like that because it's been sitting if, around. If, well, certain sticky. certain brand Ampex tape made in the late eighties, somewhere in the eighties, uh, would get the back coating would start to disintegrate. Right. And so if you baked it in an oven at a very specific time, like right around 150, uh, very for carefully. For a certain amount of time. For and several all that. hours, uh, and then take it out and let it cool. I don't know the, the exact uh, details on it, but uh, there's guys around town that do that. But that, that would restore the back coating. Because you'd put it on the tape machine, and it would start to slow down, and it would be like glue. And if you get a couple minutes into the reel, and, and then the transport wouldn't be able to roll the tape, so you have to roll it off the hand. Oh, and then the guides, the lifters... And the guides on the by which are things that pop out and scoot the tape off the head when it's in fast wind mode, they would be black. Oh my god! It From was all a, that sticky. Yeah, because basically really analog tape is sticky tape and rust. 
That's what it is. Pretty in, much. In essentially Oxide, sticky tape yeah. and rust. Yeah. Magnetic spots that are yeah, always trying right. to jump off. You right. Know, so. And I, I read something recently where people were talking about, you know, analog machines. And you see them on eBay all the time, like a four-track or a 16-track or whatever. And uh, it, I was thinking, like, yeah, that would be cool to have something like that. And then I read a comment that someone wrote that said – why would you want to do that? We couldn't wait to get rid of that stuff back in the day. You know, mm-hmm. someone like you that that had all the growing pains with it right, and things right, like that. Right. I couldn't wait to get rid of the analog. Well, and, and once we got away from it and got into the, you know, there was things about digital, early digital that we really liked. I remember recording some multi-track digital tape machines uh, early on and thinking, ah, oh, there's no noise. There's no noise. And 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 some of those sounded really good, and some of them didn't sound very good. I remember working on a thirty-three forty-eight Sony tape machine digital tape machine at sony studios here in nashville and it was but unbeknownst to me it was before the update there was a software update for it and i remember hit i was on input listening to the band it sounded good and i hit play and it was dramatically different and i was thinking well it's digital tape it shouldn't it should be pretty close but the playback the error correction was all fouled up oh and until they did the software update once they did the software update it was fine but if you record it like that, you're stuck with it. I remember thinking, this kind of sucks. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, here I am at Sony Studios in Nashville, and I'm on a 3348, quarter million, quarter of a million dollar tape machine, and input was fine, and playback is a different ball game. <laughs> I thought, so, but they got it right, and the, once they got them right, they were they were remarkable machines, but a little stark. But it wasn't anything like what we experienced later when we went all dig because digital tape machine still to an analog console, still a lot of analog processing. It might be digital processing, but still out in the analog world. That was a different world, but when we went all in the box, early Pro Tools all in the box, that didn't sound good. Wow. You know, and then we really started to miss tape. You know? And in your estimation, I read something one time that was talking about analog tape you know, ver, um, like compared to digital, and uh, how many, like when you talk about um, kilohertz or whatever, like 96K, or when you're, when you're recording in Pro Tools, it's 48K or 96K or whatever. Right, right. That means kilohertz or whatever. That's the like, sample rate, yeah. Like and sample that's, rate, and how, that's a, how many bits are firing at one time to get right, the sound. Right, right. And then compare that to analog tape running at the highest speed, and, and something uh, someone said something like it was compared, comparing it to like 48K or 96K would be like 300K. Uh, the the sound quality. Well, of the and it's tape. just it, it's almost apples and oranges though too because analog tape, there's limitations on analog on the fre- frequency response. Uh, analog tape's not very flat. Like it, I mean, at, at 30 yips, the low end roll off uh, starts at about 45 or 50 hertz, depending on the machine. If you go 15 yips, you get a more extended low frequency response. Go figure. But and so a lot of guys like to record at 15 yips, but 15 was very hard to punch in and out on. It was significantly more noisy. Ah. And uh, but at 30 yips, the roll off, depending on the machine, could start as high as 50 hertz. And uh, you still had good punchy, and the low end from say 50 to 100 was good and punchy on like like a Studer or an Atari. They were pretty nice sounding machines. And um, but uh, but the high end rolled off at. I mean, we would do a, a 100 hertz alignment, 1K and 10K. And 10K on the meters was at zero. But as soon as you cranked the oscillator up and got up to like 15, you'd see the high end start to roll off. Huh. And by 20 hertz, 20,000 hertz, 20K, it was down a little bit. Wow. You know, So, I mean, they say 20 to 20K, but not really on analog. But digital is a very distinct 20 hertz or whatever. It may even go lower than that. But it's uh, if it's at 48K... At twenty four at twenty two thousand hertz, twenty four thousand hertz, it's a hard stop, and that's a lot of the problems with digital. Not so much today, but back in the early days, that hard stop had implications down into the range of hearing that we could hear. I see. Yeah. You know, we can't. I can't hear twenty four thousand hertz, and I don't think anybody else can. And uh, hell, I probably can't hear fifteen thousand hertz anymore. But um, um, you know, so that's what they call the anti aliasing filters, and those would get down into the to the range of what we could hear and cause artifacts. And that's what made digital sound harsh and unpleasant back in the early days. Right. They've got it figured out now. And if you go to 96K, that's kind of not an issue. Um, but most people don't, I don't, there's not a ton of recording at 96 these days just because the, the you know, the file size is much larger. It taxes the computer more. And the end result is still an MP3 or 16-bit 44-1 file. Yeah. And even if we're doing Dolby Atmos, it's, it's 24-bit 48K. So I do almost everything at 48K. And, and, and modern analog to digital and digital to analog converters are much better than they were. That anti-aliasing problem at 24,000 hertz is not really an issue anymore, at least right. in my opinion. You ask a lot of engineers that, you'll get a lot of different answers. Right, yeah. Because <laughs> you know? based on their experience and right, what they, right, problems right. they've had. And some people think digital's crap and it's not. there's no 
place for it. And I'm like, no, it's it's great. It's a great tool. It's a wonderfully creative tool. It gets abused, but once you're in the computer, there's nothing you can't do with the signal yeah. and the sound. And I love the manipulation that's available. I mean, do we overtune vocals in this town? Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> do I like it? No. But do you have to do it? No. Just because it's in the computer doesn't mean you have to fix it. Right. You know, I'm, I'm kind of lazy by nature sometimes. And if it sounds good, I leave it. If yeah. it doesn't sound good, I move it around or tune it. You know. Yeah. But I don't just tune everything just to say I've tuned all the vocals. Yeah. You know. So. Um. So one of the things about that you know, the difference between, say, analog recording and, and digital is the fact that you can edit and move things around and all that. And I mean, it seems like to me, gone are the days where you had a great band, you get in the studio, you play it all at one time, you lay all the things down. There are no, edit, there are no, I mean, you could do some punches and things like that. But, right, right. But just the feel and the groove of the band and everything. And, do you that, miss and that's those a days? lot. And that's kind of a lost art. Yeah. Uh, I will say as much grief as Nashville gets for overproduction and and you know sometimes over tuning vocals and over fixing and moving parts around and making everything so tight it doesn't sound very good anymore it kind of goes the other way on the other end of the spectrum uh we still do a lot of full band recording here and it's not uncommon for me several times a month sometimes to look out through the control glass and there'll be drums bass couple guitar players keyboard player singer maybe a utility guy all at once you don't see that much in other towns. And that's a producer's decision, right? Like a good usually, producer yeah, will yeah, the bring producer in the, the cats, band you know? or the band yeah. will want to do that or the artist will say, you know, in Nashville, that's kind of our standard. We, It's not unusual to have six, seven, eight guys on the floor at once. Yeah. Now we may go back and do some fixes and, and maybe redo a few things. Just depends on that. depends on the producer and the artist and their workflow. Some guys, we go in and we cut it all. That's the track. We do vocals, overdubs, a few overdubs, and we're done, you know. And in, and, a, in a lot of ways, that saves money, really, because... You you think that having all those guys on the floor at the same time is kind of expensive. It is, but when you're talking about the hourly in a studio, when you have to go back oh, in and do overdubs in another studio, you can blow a ton of money on overdubs. Yeah, you know, in the overdub and editing world, uh, nowadays it takes most of that takes place in someone's home studio. Yeah, you don't go book East Iris Studio A for overdubs unless you just want to. Yeah, you know, or or, or um, Oceanway Studio A or Blackbird Studio D, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of studio just for an overdub, but um, some people do. You know, some people just hold up in a big studio and stay parked there for two months. They've yeah. got the budget, and that's how they want to work, you know. And that studio is their home for however long. But uh, but most time they come in a place like this, you know, a little home studio like mine, and um, I just charge for my time. There's no charge for the studio, yeah. so it's 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 a it's a cost effective but you still get a good end result you know yeah we're sitting right now in mills uh, amazing surround sound studio at his house <laughs> it's like this isn't your basement is it it's just like your kind of what used to be the garage yes but is it was actually purpose built by scott parker who used to own this house and then tom bugaback bought it from him and he had it he, he, for 16 years here but part of it was the garage and the other somewhere in here there was a part where they added on yeah. and made it but they did it right it built you know Double walls and floated floors, supposedly. Wow. You even and, got a drum booth in there. I yeah. noticed. If you need me to lay something down while I'm here, I'm, yeah. I'm yours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's but, a good uh, little studio, and uh, I do all my mixing here and a lot of overdubs. And yeah, so, like and you it. never have to leave your house. I mean, you just I walk down here. Never and, leave. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm here all the time. So yeah, that's cool. Well, for COVID, I mean, that, that was that's a perfect setup for you. I you worked, never have. I never stopped. Yeah. I just stayed in here and worked. Yeah, the beginning of COVID in 2020 and. End of March and all of April and most of May, I just worked here. And Universal sent me a ton of stuff to do, so thankfully wow. I was busy. That's great. Oh yeah, because the archival stuff mm-hmm. that you were that you've been doing. Yeah, uh, that's right. And you have a 24 inch machine back yeah. there. I saw in your closet back there. Yeah, which is cool. I walked by there and I was like, "Whoa, what yeah, is look that? that? Look at that a little piece of history." 90 dash two. So uh, back to drums um, recording now. Um, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about the history of recording and drums and how it started out like in, say, the 60s and 70s when, you know, you well, in the 60s you had a big room and then you just recorded everything in the same. Then the 70s it kind of got more isolated where the drums were drier and kind of more. Yeah, the ISO then, booth kind of became a thing. And, uh, of course, it depended on where you were. L.A. kept it, Los Angeles kept it more ambient drums. You know, you came to Nashville, and I'm not sure about New York, uh, See, like Nashville in the 80s, the drums were real dry. And real just dead. got that fat snare, real and dead. it was just like, and it kind of kept no it that And there was no ambience, way. and they had, like, carpet on the walls. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's cool. I mean, it's a sound. That's, <laughs> yeah. a, that's a very distinctive sound, and I like that sound. But I also like the big ambient drum sounds of, like, Record One or Oceanway Nashville here, which was an old yeah. church. You hit the snare drum, and, man, it's like, yeah. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, like you've been milliseconds there. of just, like, oh, natural. Uh, several, uh, maybe a full second of uh, decay. And that's a certain uh, wonderful sound, and... 
and uh, I still kind of prefer that myself the, the most. But you know, we'll and do that kind of comes through every bike too, right? I mean, you know, if you you yeah, can yeah. when you mic room that live, it yeah. does. Even you don't even have to put room mics. In. You you do, but I well, mean, you yeah, don't definitely. have to. It'll still come. Well, I mean, like the close mics on the kick and snare, you'll hear a little bit behind it, but in the mix, you won't really notice it. But if you have like like they've got a couple of M, Neumann M50s, a matched pair, at Oceanway Studio A here in Nashville, and that's those are omnidirectional microphones. And they've got these giant Japanese stands to put them on. It's the only time I ever put microphones way away from the kit is in there. Everywhere else, I keep my mics fairly close and still capture the ambience really nice. But those mics in that room are a wonderful experience. And it's it's just, it's massive sounding. Yeah. And you don't need reverb in that room. <laughs> it was, we were doing a session, a Lone Star session back in the day. This has been probably uh, 10 years ago or so. But in and Blackbird, and you had a microphone. There was a little corridor when you walked from the control. Oh, it was a chamber into this little looked like a just a little pass through room. And you walk through there, and there's this little room, like you said, it's a chamber. And yeah. then you walk out a door, and then you're into the main where the That's drums right. are in the studio. And that ceiling of that little pass through room went probably 30 feet high. 30 feet high. And I walked in there, and you had like some kind of big, tall, I don't probably know, probably an RCA skunk mic, the big round, yeah, black mics that were used in um. On film scoring stages back in like the 40s, and they had a, it was a ribbon mic, so it was bi-directional, but the front still was a little different than the back, and they had a white stripe on the back to designate the back of the mic, so that's how they got the name, the skunk mic. Oh, okay. They are <laughs> awesome. Not only do they look awesome, they sound amazing. And a pair of those in there for stereo in that chamber is like heaven. And I remember we'd leave the door open to right. the main studio room where the drums were, so the sound would just pilfer its way into this tall, big root ceiling, which was rounded. They rounded it up. They right, went right. in there. And and solid they, concrete all yeah, the way. It was really concrete. expensive to make. Most John McBride <laughs> spared no expense right. in building those studios, which we love. But we the love sound you got from it's that awesome. was awesome. I mean, it was like... <laughs> yeah. And of course, Don Cook, the producer, uh, he used, when he would work with Lonnie Wilson a lot, and it was almost, almost when I hear those mixes in the 90s, it almost sounds like all room mics to mm-hmm. me with mm-hmm. a little bit of snap on the kick and snare right right, right. but a lot of room yeah. mic you know yeah. and that was kind of the sound of the 90s wasn't it yeah cha- and chambers were the first real reverb it's real reverb right like a plate like a 140 as much as we love an old emt 140 plate that's not real reverb that's yeah. a manufactured reverb with the big steel plate that's excited by a transducer and a microphone right and it picks up the sound and that but it's a wonderful sound of reverb yeah but a chamber was a real reverb they put concrete is what you did is in in this case we didn't have to have a speaker in there we just had the door open to the drum room and that was about as natural as you can get and we put a couple mics but if you had a chamber if you wanted to use a chamber and you mixed you'd put a speaker out there the speaker would blast like say the snare drum sound out in that room and you had a couple mics if you want stereo or one mic one mono and you would pick up the sound of the speaker you know way away from the speaker so you had and you had the sound of the chamber almost nobody makes chambers anymore because they're so expensive the real estate required to make them the space yeah but there that's that's the most real of reverb as you can get other than the room itself wow we were when i was in canyon back in the 80s we toured norman petty studio in i guess clovis new mexico or wherever it was out there and he bought an old movie theater like an old uh, actual movie theater that was downtown Clovis and they closed and he bought the whole movie theater. So the stage where the movie would be playing, he made a stage there and he would that would be where you played. The control room of his studio was up where the projection booth was. Mm-hmm. So every time you had to go down to the where people were recording, you had to go all the way past all the chairs and the seats and everything nice. in the theater. And there, but then he, they said we're going to go down to the reverb chamber now. And we walked down these stairs. Nice. And as we walked down these stairs into this, like they literally dug this out years years ago when Norman Petty was still alive. He produced Buddy Holly and all that stuff. And with all that Buddy Holly money, he bought this theater and did all this. We were walking down the steps, and there was a little kind of a crawl space that had a ton of old tw- Fender Twin reverb amps you know oh guitar amps oh and they said that's his collection he used to collect them you know and it was just like in this little crawl space you keep walking down the stairs and you get down to the bottom and then was the, what you said a big concrete looked like a basement with yeah, a like speaker a room, and yeah. a couple mics in there and really well isolated so yeah, no other right. sound could get in from exactly, the outside yeah and they would use that to mm-hmm. you know when they were mixing a record or something and just send like the Quad snare studios or in nashville here is studio b which is really no longer uh, they below Studio B, which had a Neve 8068, wonderful old console. They had a chamber down there, and it was a round. It looked like a donut if you could look from the top. And you went in there, and it was kind of low. You couldn't really stand up, but it was about maybe five feet high, four and a half, five feet high. And it was a big round, probably 
24 feet, you know, in diameter, but it was it was like a donut. Oh, wow. So it was just like, you know, you had this outer rim that was all hard concrete. And on one end, they had a microphone, two microphones. On the other end, they had a speaker. And I was in there mixing one day, and Aaron Shannon, who was my second engineer, this was back in the 90s. And I was mixing, and I was mixing on the cons. Back when we still mix on consoles a lot. And I've got the chamber going, and it was a beautiful sounding chamber. And um, all of a sudden, I hear this, really loud and i'm like and it's coming through the echo returns on the console and i'm like what the hell's that and it was aaron he had opened the door and, and walked in there and started yelling real loud just as a joke he was a practical constant okay. practical joker and i oh laughed so hard and he came upstairs and he was laughing because all of a sudden he heard the music stop oh my <laughs> you God. know and he was down there in the chamber and it's coming through the speakers and it sounded Oops. real eerie because it's full of reverb you know <laughs> Like, so, but it's a great it was a great chamber. It's still there. I I don't know if Marty who bought the studio is, uses it or not, but it was a great little chamber. Wow. And I use it a lot when I'm And how it. the sounds have changed from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s where it was all dry and poofy and um mm-hmm. and then in the 90s where it was all like, you know, and I guess now it's kind of gone back to now it's what kind it is of, like a mix between the two. Anything goes now. You know, yeah. back then, it, you know, so much of music and, and the trends in music were driven by the technology. Right. I mean, think about when the Lin 9000 came out. Listen the Lin drum, yeah. yeah That's the, the first Prince, drum machine, right? Listen to all the early Prince records. Yeah. It's right. all Lin, Lin drum. He I heard that, that Huey thing. Lewis sports album, the uh, sports was all almost all Lin drum with a few overdubs. I did a stem mix of um, several of Huey Lewis and News's hits. I Want a New Drug was one of them. Yeah. And they sent me these files and Pro Tools, and I got them. And I started mixing. I'm like, this sounds different than the original version. I said, I think I got the wrong version. It had real drums on it. Yeah, it was uh-huh. really good, but it was to- totally different. And his singing was very uh, Huey Lewis. His singing was really consistent, and the vocal sounded really close to the original. But it was a whole different vocal. And then I realized oh, I've got the wrong version. And I went back and found the right version. It was another set of files in that folder, and it was all drum machine. And I oh, didn't well. know that. Yeah. And I don't know if it's Lindrum, if it was Fairlight or Synclavier, you know. Well, if you listen to I Want a New Drug, if you notice when it's um, just before it goes to that da-da-da-da, the saxophone part, you hear this drum feel, this tom's like, ba-ga-ga-ga-ga-ga. And you, you think like, oh, those sound like real drums, but then, then it goes back to the Lindrum, and it's just like, do real drum machine sound. Super so tight, perfectly From what time. I heard, that he sort of, you could almost hear it where he overdubbed a few tom fills mm-hmm. that was with real common. drums, but the, the meat and potatoes was the kick and snare. That's was right. Like the That's right. And sometimes they would do like real crash cymbals and, not, and a real hi-hat too. Yeah. Like right, I right. did a, a pre-mix for Dolby Atmos of Billy Idol's White Wedding and I was like, oh, That was all Lindrum, right? No, it's oh, real drums. Really? It is. I didn't know it, but they had a bunch of overdub toms with like a 55 to 60 millisecond slapback, which is really fast. Yeah. It's almost hard to discern. When he goes, do-do, do-do, do I was having to recreate those tom sounds because I just had the drag. And I remember hearing them going, well, those are real. I thought it was all fake drums, but they're real drums. But they're really tight and they're really isolated. And they were cut in a fairly dead room with reverb. And... um, um. But the toms were overdubbed, and I thought, oh, those are Lindrum toms. No, they're real. They just really processed the fire out of them. And that slapback echo, which was really fast, 55, I think it was 55 or 60 milliseconds, which is not really considered slapback. But if you crank enough of it up, you can hear the flam it creates, and it's an awesome sound. And I'm like, wow. I learned something today. Wow. And, uh, but there was a lot of overdubs back then because, you know, sometimes they, they would do parts that the drummer physically couldn't play in one yeah. pass, you know. Huh. Because the, the beat would keep going, do 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 would go yeah. under while the drums are still going. You know? Oh right, that's just yeah. What they wanted to do, you know. So it's just what the producer feels, what they want, yeah. you know. It's, yeah. But the the amount of time they spent on records back then is just insane. Oh, it cost a fortune to do that, and that's yeah. why now we, you know, you know, Pro Tools have been a blessing and a curse because you can move faster. Sometimes it slows down, but you know, you can definitely record faster today, and with yeah. budgets being different than they were thirty years ago. Uh, we kind of have to sometimes. So. Yeah. And I noticed that young kids, they're kind of embracing that old technology like analog tape and vinyl and things like that. You know, mm-hmm. Do you think that that'll kind of make a comeback? Do you think well, they'll, I mean, they'll drive that? We just finished Toby's new record. Um, Toby Keith. Toby Keith, yes. <laughs> uh, Pace, I think it's Pace One in My Pocket ended up being the name of the record. And they sent me a, te- a vinyl test pressing. Really? That Is that Ted right? Jensen mastered it. And another guy at Sterling here in Nashville did the vinyl. It sounds beautiful. It's a niche market. It's never going to be like it was. Right. It won't be the majority of sales. But some people, when you drop the needle on a nice, new, 
clean test pressing, yeah, there's no sound like it. Wow, there is no sound like it. And the limitations of vinyl are enormous. You yeah. know, if you look at the spec sheets and the white and the and the numbers on paper, which doesn't really matter, it just matters whether it sounds good or not. But you look at the specs on it, you're like, wow, it's going to sound like shit compared to the yeah. digital. But then you compare it to the digital wave file, which there's nothing wrong with the digital wave files of the mastering of that record, but they're just kind of there. But when you hear the analog, the the vinyl record, you're like, oh. And I hate using this word, but there's something magic about it. Yeah. And I'm an engineer. Engineer, I should be able to des- describe what I'm hearing, and I can't. Wow. It just sounds, you know, a lot of people say, well, it sounds warm. Yeah, you can just put a sock over the mic and get warm. That's not the same. But there's something about it. There's something about it. There's, you know, there's a couple of little clicks and pops here and there. Because, but because it's a test pressing, it's very clean. Yeah. You know, the more you play a vinyl record, the more it deteriorates. And over right. time, if you play it enough, I played so many back in the day as a kid, they got pretty awful sounding. And they yeah. were real. And the distortion goes way up. And as your needle moves in, you always put your best songs on the first couple songs, two right. or three songs, because you got inside the record, the yeah. grooves got closer, and, the, and and all the specs would change. The well, that's why. Went, that's why that is. I never knew that. Why you? I just figured it was because you know they didn't want you to uh, lose interest in the record as you you buy this new record, you put it on. The first couple songs are probably really really good, you know. That's right. And just so you don't get like, oh, this this is terrible. But the, the grooves are further apart, so yeah. and I think they might be deeper. I'm not sure about that. A mastering engineer can tell you, but but because the spacing on the grooves are wider, the frequency response is better. The distortion is lower. Yeah. As you got more in toward the middle of the inside of the record, um, those grooves got closer together. And of course, it's also the diameter smaller. Right. Yeah. And and the frequency response, everything went downhill. <laughs> wow. If you listen to like I remember, was it Beatles Abbey Road? Um, there's a couple. Well, I can't remember the name of the song. Um, but I remember thinking as a kid, and I didn't know what it was. I'm like, why does this song not sound so good? And probably because I beat the record up more than likely, or the stylus was worn out. But I remember those songs on that one record were a little bit more distorted. And I, even then as a kid, I didn't know what distortion yeah. was, other than my guitar amp turned all the way up. <laughs> but I didn't understand distortion on a vinyl record. But I remember thinking, uh, she came in through the bathroom window, that song. Yeah. Do, 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 do. Um, I couldn't. I remember thinking that song because it was on the end, in, on the near the end of the side A or yeah. B. I remember thinking that song just sounds kind of fuzzy. I didn't know why. Yeah. I just thought that's how they recorded. But it's probably because the vinyl record limitation at that position on the record. Oh right, not very yeah. good. You know? Wow. Now, I remember having certain skips on records when I was a kid, and th- that DNA in my brain where that skip was, where it, it would skip comes, at the same time, it? it's still here in my brain. So when I hear it without the skip, it yep. almost sounds weird to me. Same thing. Isn't and I had weird? CDs that would skip, which is a whole other argument, a whole other conversation. <laughs> but I had a couple CDs that would skip, and, I, and I, now that they're on my, you know, Apple Music. Well, I guess we don't have an iPods anymore. But my phone, yeah. and plugged into my stereo, in my car. When it goes by that certain part of the song, I still hear the skip. Catches your attention. I still hear the skip. Like, oh though, well, yeah, that's the non-skipper. Yeah. Um, so about drums, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, uh, the difference between, say, um, open toms and like the, the, you know, taping them up or, you know, kind of deadening them or whatever. Um, that's kind of moved through history, too. You know, it kind of started out with just dead and then you kind of uh, tune them wide open. And what's your favorite you know, take on that? I mean, now I do it both ways. Uh, there's you know, like your drums are typically pretty open sounding, which how can you not like that? You yeah. Know? Um, if they're tuned right, you know, if right, you right. have a good... Your drums sound really good. Uh, Greg Morrow is a another session guy here in town that I work with a lot. His, his drums are very open, very rock sounding, uh, really, really wonderful. But then on the flip side, Fred Eldringham, who's another great session guy here, he plays an old early 70s Ludwig standard kit. And we were working with a songwriter uh, uh, a few years ago, and we were, we were in Studio D at Universal Music, or at... Uh, House of Blues, it was called House of Blues back then. And um, uh, Stephanie Smith, the songwriter and producer, said, I want really dead drums. You think Fred's into that? And I said, oh, you got the right guy. The towels stay on his toms taped all the time. The towels? They put towels he on He puts them. little lightweight towels or tea towels, you know, not like big old thick, you know. But How does he keep them on there he from tapes falling? Them. I've he tried tapes that them. before. He they tapes fall them on there. He tapes them on there. Wow. And uh, so when he goes around his toms, it's like, boop, 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 boop. There's no, yeah. and in that room at Studio D at House of Blues was really dead, and it was wonderful. It was awesome, and he Do you does have to it, crank up the gain on those a lot, uh, a little bit. They may not be as loud, you know, and especially if you're in a dead room. But uh, but nowadays it's kind of it's anything goes. You yeah. might have one day of really dead drums, and you might have the next day at Oceanway A, yeah. or Blackbird D with a chamber roaring. You know, it's just whatever people want. Yeah. There's n- there's no real trend in that department anymore. Yeah. It's just it, there's it's a all magical cool. moment in a record when you hear the intro of a song. The drums don't come in yet, 
and you're hearing some sort of rhythm or some kind of guitar or maybe a vocal thing, and then you may hear a fill. And when that snare, when that backbeat first comes in, there's always that moment of like, oh, that's what it's, that's what. That's that's the tone for the like record. It's like that sound, yeah. Yeah, that, that weather's gonna you know, be big. If you fat, did eighties, late eighties L.A. drum sounds yeah. were really big and or open. Or like a tight snare or whatever. You or get Lenny that Kravitz surprise. record was really really dead. A, what, what that? A Lenny Kravitz record, you know, which yeah, were right. he was an early adopter of Pro Tools, and I just did a. I was at Westlake Pro Audio yesterday talking to Matt Noble, who was his engineer on all those big hits. He's now doing... And he, he played everything, didn't he? Lenny Kravitz. He played, he played the drums, yeah. the bass, the and guitar. And Matt was his engineer and telling me about how they did, you know, they recorded the drums and everything into Pro Tools back in the 90s. Yeah. You know, early, mid 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 to late 90s. All those big hits that he had were all, all Pro Tools records. Wow. You know. But yeah, yeah, the drums would oftentimes set the tone for the style of sure. Yeah, music and I mean, and, do you like that? I mean, as an engineer, is that oh, kind of I what love you that. live for? That? I love that. I mean, drums are definitely the most difficult part of the recording. I mean, it's all you got to know what you're doing for all of it. But drums, drums are where so many young engineers falter. Right. And um, you know, because there's you know multiple often, mics and it's well, I mean, like I'll have loud. like two bass drum mics, two snare drum mics, a hi hat mic, one mic for each tom. I don't do top and bottom. I just just do top mics on the toms so say three toms and then i'll have a pair of overheads and use depending on the room either two a stereo room mic or a stereo room mic and, a, and a, an additional mono mic or if i'm at blackbird i'll have stere a stereo room mic plus another stereo room mic in the chamber if i'm at blackbird d or wow. a a also has a nice chamber. and those are separate tracks on pro tools right? yeah so you'll have anywhere from 12 to 16 tracks of drums wow. you know That's i don't amazing. some people get really crazy and um when Rush recorded in Nashville, I heard from one of the seconds that the engineer had top and bottom dual diaphragm condenser mics, which like a C12 and 67s on the toms, top and bottom. And they had like 60 mics because Neil Peart's got 15,000 toms. Yeah. He's the only guy that's allowed to have that many toms because he knows how to play them. If anybody comes in with more than three or four toms in this town, we kind of look at it like... Yeah, I remember doing about? a session with you. Uh, we were pre prepping to do a session and you, uh, you called me and asked if... Uh, could, could you do three toms instead of four? Or whatever it was, you know, I was, I was like, four times, okay, I guess well, no, four yeah. times is fine. It's like easy on the toms, there. Yeah. but I only did it because I know you really like toms. And that's fills. okay. If like, you ever in the future, you can always do four toms. I mean, it's okay. You know, and you, as long as I, I think you submixed some or some or yeah. something like that. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, but some guys will have a ton of mics, you know, and and you know you have to watch the phase. The phase relationship between each mic and the kit is crucial to proper. Well, what a good sounding playback. So for those that don't know, face like the direction that you point the, the a mic. The time it takes take for the sound, like the snare drum is typically your loudest instrument on the drum kit. And so you got a close mic, which is, in my case, right on the head. I like it like that. Yeah. You know, people say, well, your ear's not there. I'm like, but that 57's not my ear either. Yeah, right. You know, it needs to be right there to get that sound and sure. that crack. Uh, but then, like, say, the uh, overhead mic, which might be, you know, Two and a half, three feet above the snare drum. Right. That's gonna the, the time it takes the snare drum sound to get from there to there is gonna be obviously way longer. Yeah. Than on the close mic, so we always check the phase. And there's a button on the console. It's got a little zero with a line through it, and that means that's just that's polarity. Yeah. And that 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 basically just flips the uh, the polarity upside down, and some and you just have it either flipped or not flipped. And uh, and I always check the polarity on the overheads and the room mics and the toms. Does that change the timing of how? Long no, it the... just it just it, if you look at it on paper, you'll see a line going like a sine wave. You know, down at sample level of any any signal, there's a sine wave like this. It goes up and it goes down. It goes up and it goes down. That's that's the re that's the vibration at whatever frequency. And so, if you have like the snare drum, and if you look at it in Pro Tools, you can zoom in and see that sine wave. Right. And if you see it going up. And then say the overhead got the overhead on the track right below it and pro and if that's what waveform is going down at the same time the other one's going that's almost 180 degrees out of phase. Oh, I and see. so yeah. you'll lose a lot of low end. You'll it'll sound kind of crummy. Sometimes we use that to our advantage, and I've seen mix guys actually flip phase out on purpose oh, uh, to make it to, to cancel. Sometimes in the right areas, it'll yeah, cancel. phase is a weird thing. Phase I remember is tricky. Logic that's the hardest used to part. Have a great little tool in the goniometer one of the one of the plugins you could go in there and it would turn red if it was out of if anything was out mm -hmm. of phase it would turn a color like red that's and nice. as soon as it would go blue you knew so you could solo tracks and find out where the out of phase that's right. was that saved my butt so many times when yeah. i was doing and you can always logic. flip the phase after the fact as a, as a recording engineer i always felt like it's real recording engineers almost always get the phase right on the right. rundown right because you know, in the mix guy if you're not mixing it yourself if the mix guy go oh the overheads are out of phase with the Snare yeah, down. it's kind of a junior move, but we try. And sometimes you want to flip it out on purpose, but I try to make sure my polarity is correct, and that way it's, it gives you the best low end. Usually, the first thing that cancels the low end. Yeah, and um, 
so that's a big part of drum sounds is the polarity. Yeah. And because uh, we click them out with clickers to make sure the the wiring the the electrical polarity is correct, which is. Right. Kind of different, but will also serve the same purpose. If you have a wall panel on the wall that's out of phase, right. its polarity's inverted, uh, then you, that's that'll wreak havoc with you. And you'll find that every time it'll be the same every time. You and know? you've had to learn this through years of your career. You've had to learn this maybe the hard way in the beginning. Well, and, and I had know. good engineers. Uh, I had a couple really good mentors, and I'm so fortunate. Jim McHale, who's since passed away, and was very sad about that, but he was probably the, my biggest mentor. And he told me, he showed me every secret he knew, and he was so good. He was really, really good. And Brent Mayer was also another producer, engineer, who produced all the Judds. We all worked in the same studios together. Jim worked with Brent as well. And Brent would show me stuff. And Jim would go into great detail about why he did this and why that. And he always told me about phase. And and, uh, and I also worked with a guy named Tom Harding, who did some of the early ZZ Top stuff, or 80s ZZ Top stuff, a really good rock and roll engineer. I learned a lot from him as well at next door at Treasure Isle, which is right next door to Blackbird Studio A. And um, uh, so I learned a lot from those three guys about how to record drums wow. and, and lots of it, lots of recording. And you know. now, so these days, you're kind of the go-to guy, it seems like, for surround sound stuff, because a lot of these old mixes of albums and things like that, they're kind of, aren't they kind of trying to get them sort of re... Well, they're like Universal Music Group, as well as a lot of other record companies now, are, are wanting to get a lot of their old catalog uh, into the Dolby Atmos format because it's just such an exhilarating and we get done I'll play a little bit in here if you've not heard it oh yeah um, so we're it, sitting in his studio right now and I'm looking at the ceiling and the walls and there's <laughs> just like it's like a speaker store I mean it's like uh, speaker city angle behind <laughs> us to the side above our heads there's speakers how many speakers would you say you've got going it's, at one there's time? 15 total there's two subs behind the console and it's a, what they call a 914 wow. setup there's nine speakers around it at ear level and there's four in the ceiling and then the one is the LFE Wow. And then there's the bass management sub. Which and to does. mix a record, like to mix a record surround like that, or or a sound like a live concert or something like that, that's like every single speaker has to be accounted for, and you yeah. have to send that. You have to make the decision of which one to send where and all that. Right, it's all object based. So you just if you when there's music playing on the render up there, you'll see little green balls, either sometimes moving or just static, wow. and that represents their their place in the field of, of the Atmos environment. Wow, and uh, it's it's wonderful. It's it's like nothing you've ever. Heard How long before. would it take to to mix like say a live concert, like if Kansas or something like that was doing a live concert, had done a live concert, and you're mixing it for surround sound? I mean, ten songs, you know, it might take you a week. You wow. know, if, I mean, if if there's already stereo mixes done. If there's not, a lot of guys are starting to mix, well, not a lot, but some are live shows. They'll mix the Atmos mix first and do a fold down of 2.0 wow. and create the stereo mix right there on the fly. And uh, But it, it, that'll take a good, uh, if you're doing the mix from scratch, it could be a song a day. Yeah. But if you're doing um, an Atmos mix that already has a stereo mix because you kind of copycat and you're taking the stems that are already mixed and just placing them in the Atmos fire, sometimes you can do two or three songs in a day. Wow. It just depends. So know. mixing a record... Um, Speaking about a song a day, um, mixing a record, the whole process, is it you by yourself? You just sit in here and or do I you have an, uh, an assistant? And I know you sort of start with the kick drum and you move on and you just kind of then, so by the end of the day, you start bringing in compression and you start adding all the. I try to get to everything relatively and, quick. I try to have a pretty quick, because if I listen to the drums by themselves, and that's kind of the natural progression, I, get, I guess some guys do it different, but uh, I definitely try to get the drums all pumped up in the way I want them to sound. And then put other stuff in, but I try to get a relative rough mix of everybody, including the vocal, in pretty quick because it'll skew your perspective. And we're all a little bit different on that. But if you listen to the drums soloed out for very long, for the next maybe 30 minutes or so, you might have them a little too loud in the mix because you've listened to them by themselves. Yeah. And it's and for me, it's hard to hear the perspective after a while. It takes a while to get back in. So I try to get everything up pretty quick. Um, I have an assistant that sets up my sessions for me, so they're kind of ready to go, but they're still the full mix and ready to go. And so I'll hit play, and she might have a pretty good rough mix going, and I'll just go from there, and then I may I may go back and salt the drums and change some stuff, or maybe not, you know. But I always try to make sure the vocals on, all the band is on, and try to have that fairly quick because, like, if for example, I was doing some overdubs in here, I think it was with Dean, I bet it, I think it was with Dean, your all's keyboard player for Lone Star, producer, and we were working on something. He said, "Hey, can you do a rough mix on this?" I said, "Yeah." I said, "But there's a good chance the overdub instrument, which I can't remember, maybe it was a fiddle, which we don't do a lot of fiddle these days in Nashville." Uh, I said it's it's probably going to be too loud because we've been doing we've been over it all day and we've been listening to it kind of cranked up and I said this I said help me get the level right because I'll I'll goof it up so you I need had a to, fresh set of ears yeah so play. so he said okay I said does that sound about right for me? he goes yeah great so I printed the rough mix real quick did like three songs sent it home he got home he goes 
you're right, the fiddle's like 4 dB too loud. I was like, see? See, it happened to him too. I said, see? I said, you just have to get away from it for a little while, and then, you, then you'll know, you're, learn your perspective of where it goes real quick. Yeah. Have you ever worked late into the night on a mix, and then you wake up the next morning and listen to it with fresh ears, and you're like, what the heck? All the time. <laughs> all the time. Especially yeah, people. And, and I know now, I know when if, if all of a sudden, if my mood on the mix swing, swings in an instant, that's when it's time to stop. I'll be mixing them, it sounds great, and then... Like that, you go, this sounds like shit. And uh-huh. it's like, okay, maybe it's time to stop. And I'll yeah. look at the watch. If it's after 9 or 10 o'clock, um, you know, yeah. it's probably time to stop, especially if I've been going all day. You know, uh-huh. And I'm not into mixing 12, 14 hours a day unless I absolutely have to. Yeah. It's really hard to keep a perspective. Do you feel like your relationship with a drummer, with a session drummer, uh, if it's a good relationship and respectful and all that, that the, that the outcome comes out better? I mean, that's oh, kind of a strange absolutely. question. But. No, no, it's a good question. I think... Music is, you know, we're real people making real music, and whether it's program music or not, uh, it's all good. But yeah, the vibe, the 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 vibe of the session player or the band player, that's that's fifty percent of the gig right there. If the guy's an asshole and won't take direction, it might he might be a great drummer, but can you tighten that floor tom just a little bit? It's kind of quanking a little bit. They're like, no, it sounds good to me. I mean, I've had certain session guys, you know, younger guys sometimes, and I'll say, hey, there's. Man, and, and they're great players. Mm-hmm. I'll say, hey, there's maybe a little too much effect on that. Can we just back it down a little bit? Because a lot of times in Nashville, we'll record with the effects on the guitars. And that's okay, and it's cool. And they've they, they got it dialed in, it sounds wonderful. It's part of the sound, and that's what we keep. Uh, but sometimes it's too much. And I'm like, can we? And he goes, man, dude, that's my sound. I'm like, okay, cool. You know, I'm like, and, and he's you're a great married to player, it. You're stuck with it. But it makes me think. And I don't have an ego. I don't, you know, we've been beat down so many times. <laughs> there's no ego left, <laughs> you know, and uh, there's no pride. And uh, it's a team effort. But when the guys are all willing to work with you, it, there's no reason it's not going to be, you know, the outcome, especially if they're great session guys or great band guys. It's just going to be a, anybody with a lot of experience just knows. Yeah. You know, I can tell Michael Rhodes, he's probably the most recorded bass player in this town, and he is more than glad to oblige. Or Kenny Greenberg, who's done thousands of records and a great producer as well. He also produced Toby's new record with us. And uh, uh, he's like, oh, yeah, man, no problem. Great. Yeah, yeah. too much effects? Is it? Yeah, whatever. You yeah. know, and then, and of course, if there's if the relationship with the producer, engineer, and the session player, the drummer, sometimes it's just the wrong two guys in the room yeah. together. And the drummer might be wanting to play a certain way or have a certain sound, and I may not like it. Yeah. And this is not the guy for me. Or I'm not the guy for him. I'm not the engineer for him. So, and that happens, you know, so you tend to kind of use guys that, you know, are going to, um, the outcome, but most session guys are really, cause it's a service industry, man, mm-hmm. in big time. Yeah. And they are more than happy to change up to a point. Yeah. Um, their sound to accommodate the, the engineer or the producer or the artist. You've worked with Vinnie Caluta before? I've not. Not really? Never have. I huh. would love to. God, the guy's just legendary. He's been doing some country stuff, like with Faith, Faith Hill and mm-hmm. uh, some other I know he's been around. in town over, on and off over the years to play. He's a wonderful drummer. I've seen him play live. He, I saw him play live with Sting in the 90s at Starwood Amphitheater. It was amazing. Amazing you know? drummer. He's unbelievable. Yeah. You know, so. I've heard stories that he is such a seasoned guy, such a seasoned player that uh, they would be in the studio and um, he would play a, a take and then the producer say, okay, let's, can we try that again? And, and he would just basically go, no, I got it. It's good. And in that way, you think like, well, he might be being an asshole, but at the same time, he's been doing this for so long. He knows better than anybody else that... More than likely, he, he's probably he's, nailed his part. Yeah, he nailed his and part. And sometimes, a lot of... I've seen producers say, okay, let's do it again, guys. And I'm like, okay, cool. Just to have a second a Right, right. And whatever. that's okay. You know, Pro Tools, we playlist everything now, so there's always mm-hmm. too many options later. And uh, But sometimes you just want to have a second pass. And uh, But... Uh, if they don't offer, if they get too far down the rabbit hole, they keep going over and over and over and they keep all the takes and somebody in the band's going to go, what do we need to change? Because we're just going to play the same thing over and over. Yeah. Or we're going to do it slightly different. But How many we... times have you gone back to the original first take and go, a that lot. was the best a one? Lot. A lot. All the time, right? You know. But sometimes you got to beat it up. Sometimes yeah. you got to hash it out and carve it out and that's what it takes. And uh, the nice thing about Pro Tools now is you have the option to keep all that stuff. Yeah. There again, so, so, sometimes lazy, lazy by nature. I only go back to those playlists if I have to, mm-hmm. if I'm the producer, you know. And um, some people go through them all just to see, and that's fine. But if I got the if the last playlist that we did say is playlist five, and it sounds good, and the artist is happy, 
then we're good. There's no need you to You as go. a producer, do you engineer also when you produce, or do you have another oh, engineer? Yeah, in yeah. I would never. <laughs> I, would never <laughs> I would beat the fire out of some poor kid trying oh, right. to engineer. Because I just I, I know that's where I come from. That's been my world for 30 yeah. years. And so it's a lot of work when you got to produce and engineer together. Right, yeah. Now sometimes I may have someone. I'll have someone run Pro Tools, absolutely, on tra- and that's pretty much the standard with yeah. just engineering because I like to mix on the desk, all the faders up on the desk, headphone mix everything, and I try to make it sound like a finished record while we're tracking. Yeah, you know, and that's the big part of it for me is to make it sound so when they put the headphones on, they're like, oh, this sounds great. They come into the control room, oh, it sounds great in here too, because you got to know what you're doing. Yeah, and if and I'm running both, it's it somewhere somewhere there's a compromise. It's hard to do both. And, and with like, a good engineer, I have to say, from my experience, playing in the studio with a great engineer like that, it really is like you're playing or playing an album right there in, yeah. live in front of and you. And I, I think mean, having a good headphone headphones. mix, a head, the headphone mix is the most important part in the studio. With the me. exception of the click track, which is just like beating your head. Well, as a drummer, the governor. It beats my head today. We call that the governor. The governor. you got to have that. <laughs> the opponent. <laughs> yeah. And so that brings up another question about... Um, I've been talking to a lot of drummers about, you know, click or no click kind of thing. You know, uh, there's like you have a song like um, Honky Tonk Women that starts out the drums. By the end of that song, those drums are cooking tempo wise. And Mm -hmm. nobody ever said, oh, that song sucks because the drums speed up. Nobody ever said that, you know. Right. Well, and that's because that's all we've ever heard on that song. And of course, Rolling Stones, they made great records. People think they just went in there and it was one pass and was done. No, sir. No, sir. That's very much a thought out. They camped out in the studio. I wouldn't right? say thought out's the wrong word, but they, they definitely worked on those records to make them sound like that. Now, did they always play to a click track? Maybe never, you know. But that's that that's the magic and the and the chemistry of a band. Yeah. That Listening the Rolling, to each other and the Rolling Stones are probably one of the best, along with the Beatles, Led Zeppelin, some of the other gla- classic artists of our time, uh, are probably one of the best examples of band chemistry done really well. Yeah. And um, and spending time on a record where right, you have right. that luxury, and they, you know, people say, well, because we're going to make this sound stonesy, which means loose, but they don't think they just went in there and recorded one pass and said called it a day. Just because it don't sounded think, like that, maybe I yeah. don't think yeah. so. And I'm sure Keith Richard overdubbed guitar, Mick Jagger overdubbed vocals. I'm sure, you know, they probably punched in some drum fills, you know, drum fixes. But you know, those records are very, very well crafted. People think they're easy to make. No, not at all. Yeah. They are not easy to make. I was not there for them, so I don't know. But my best speculation as an engineer that's been around for 30 years that they probably worked their butts off to make them sound like that. Wow. You know, just the right amount of looseness, the right amount of vibe, float. But then again, you can make great records with the click track too. You yeah, know, click right. track gets a lot of bad rap, and click track enables a lot of nice things like the grid and Pro Tools, which is a blessing and a curse. Right, yeah. You know, of course. But, so, so um, what would be your advice to a young drummer? coming up in the ranks and maybe thinking about a career in the studio or even a career live, but also playing, because everybody has to play in the studio at one time or another. Um, what would you say your best advice to um, a young drummer coming in to, to know? Well, I, I'm amazed at the people, speaking of the click track, uh, learn to play to a click. Yeah. You're gonna, whether you like it or not, you're going to have to play to a click in the studio most of the time. Champion that. Make, make that your... And, and learn how to play to it without feeling stiff. That's the yeah. magic thing. That's right. really hard to do because a lot of guys can get tight with a click and then it feels kind of stiff-armed. And, and, uh, but learn to play to a click, uh, that's so important. Um, but, and then if we turn it off, then maybe – and if you learn to play to it, then on the times when we don't, there's no click available or you're not going to play to it or don't want to play to it, you don't move all over the place. You know, yeah, a, a right. really good drummer, sort of you turn the click off, they'll still be relatively, if the song's at 80 beats per minute, by the time they get to the end, they might be at 81 or 82, still f- reasonably close, you know, but at that tempo, you can't go very far because it really starts to sound loose. Right. But um, uh, learn to play to a click and make your drums sound good. Learn how to tune your freaking drums. Right. You know, it's, uh, and listen to the rest of the band. I guess those three things, learn how to listen. It's not all about you. Mm-hmm. You know, young guys coming in from Berkeley, there's been some great guys, young guys come in town over the years, and you have to listen to the rest of the band and the singer. Turn the and sing- the song, too, because like playing, I'm, knowing I'm just, when to lay it's back It's a team effort. Things. It's not about you or the guitar solo or the singers. It's about everybody playing as a whole. Yeah. And that's what Nashville does probably better than the other town is is, is because we oftentimes record, with the like I said earlier, with the full band in the studio, everybody knows how to listen to each other. Yeah. You know. And Paul Lyme was telling me uh, the other day about serving the song. That's right. He's make, exactly make right. Make those drum parts fit the song that's and right. not be like, you know, hey, I'm going to show and off. And a good drummer will know when he can do a fancy drum fill or yeah. 
two-bar drum fill or one-bar drum fill. Yeah, you'll get you that know. chance. You'll get yeah. that chance, but, but Most of the, the don't exist. You know, they're cool. Yeah. Some of the early Barry White stuff I did for Atmos, we had a lot of those in there. That right. was kind of the, that was kind of the trend back then, and I loved it. I loved those kind of films. Oh yeah, I know. I've <laughs> always known you as a Tom Phil guy. So like when I record something that I know you're gonna <laughs> be involved with, I always like, try to throw in some extra. Hit them and hit them fairly hard, pretty hard, not too those hard. Those journey, those big journey Tom yes, Phils, you know. Yes, <laughs> yes, Steve Smith, yeah, or Larry yeah. London. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This has been oh man, really insightful. I always learn so much every time I see you, and every time I talk, I talk to you, I always ask you a billion. Well, questions. Well, I love and... working with you because you're so excited about the music and playing drums, and that's you know after all these years, we're all becoming old guys now. Yeah. You know, we're all past the age of fifty, and you know it's 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 fun to to still be able to get to do this and make money at it, and it's still just a freaking hobby to me. You know, I mean, it's not a hobby, but I mean, right. but it's, it, it it's, feels like it. We yeah. like it. It's, it's our, it's what we want to do. If I, if I, I don't do anything else because this is what I like to do. Yeah. You know, I had to, I had to make myself take time off. You which, still enjoy it. That's, that's amazing to find it, somebody that's you know. been doing it this long and still enjoys right, right. it. And you seem very excited to always, every time we show up in the studio with you guys, you're, everybody's excited to play. And that, that makes it so much more fun. You know, when you see a guy that's been doing, working his butt off, he's a little bit burned out and he may be really good, but he's not having a good time. That shows up in the in the work, yeah, in the music, of and uh, um, but uh, but yeah, I, I enjoy working with you, and it's always a pleasure. So thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's been Mills Logan and Keith Rainwater here on Designated Drummer, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you. <laughs>